Amen. All right. Well, um, last Sunday we had uh, some people get baptized, and that was a blessing. Baptism is kind of like that new beginning, uh, a representation of what God is doing in a person's life. Uh, one of the people that got baptized was uh, my daughter, Abigail, and that was so cool to be able to baptize her. And then uh, one of the things that I try to do with each one of my kids is to spend individual time with them and just get away with them individually. I know that there's collective time, but there's individual time. And for Abby, what she wanted to do was she wanted to camp. So we took a night and we got a, uh, you know, we took a tent and we went camping and um, I had preloaded uh, a movie on, uh, on my, my phone, downloaded a movie so that one of the things that we could do is watch a movie. And it was funny because the movie that I got for her was uh, Disney's movie Bears. I don't know if you've seen that. It's this documentary kind of a narration. But the reason why I got that movie, it's going to sound weird, but it's because Abby has an a, a irrational fear of bears. Um, we, <laughs> we've seen bears before in Mammoth. We went camping in Mammoth, and uh, we saw bears there, and she saw a bear a huge bear climb up a tree in front. It, she just was kind of freaked out. And, you know, we've been over to Truckee where there's bears. And so I thought this would be a way for her to watch this movie and to enjoy it with me so that she gets kind of over her fear with, of bears and kind of enjoys that time. And it was funny because uh, I said, hey, Abby, I said, tonight, it was after the campfire, we're in the tent. I said, I have a movie for you. She goes, what movie? I said, it's a surprise. And she knows me well enough to go, Daddy, is it about bears? <laughs> and I said, she said, yeah, Abby, it is. She goes, why'd you rent me a movie about bears? And I said, because I think you'll like it. And she enjoyed the movie, and uh, we, we loved it. And just her and Ellie were watching it again the other night. But we have times together, but that individual time is really special. And I think that that individual time was a time for me to address in her um, a fear and to give her a sense of security. I wanted her to be camping in the forest <laughs> and to watch this movie about bears and to realize that I don't have to be afraid even in the forest. And I think for us, Romans chapter 11 is going to speak to us in a way in which God is going to address a fear that I think sometimes all of us struggle with. Have I messed up God's plan for my life? Now, you may not have that fear, but I know that the people next to you do. The person sitting on your right and your left, they, they have had that fear in the past. And sometimes we have that fear, like, have I messed up God's plan? Does God still have a plan, even though he told me to do this and I went another way? Or did I miss, miss what he was telling me? And when we read Romans chapter 11, I think we're going to be encouraged that God uses the nation of Israel to teach us not just about Israel, but to teach us about himself. And God's dealings with Israel gives us security about God's dealings with us because he is the God that continues to work, even though there are times that we are faithless, even though there are times that we struggle. So Romans chapter one through eight, you know, just awesome where it just, it's the plan of the gospel and, and what God has done throughout the ages. And then nine, 10 and 11, some people say, well, and there are even some scholars, if you would call them that, say, well, that was just kind of like uh, an addendum or something that's kind of thrown in there because they can't see how Romans 9, 10, and 11 fits into the overall picture of the gospel. But it's, it fits in perfectly as the Holy Spirit is inspired because it reminds us that God has a plan 
And part of that plan is the way that he dealt with Israel in their past. The way he dealt with their past. And, and it shows us that God overcame their past. Chapter 10 was about how Israel still needs the gospel. The, the Jews still need the Lord. And, and it deals with Israel's present. And then here in Romans chapter 11, that God still has a plan. And it, it deals with Israel's future. I want to read to you in chapter 10, verse 1, something that Paul wrote, inspired by the Spirit. He said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Do you remember last week that that was Paul's prayer? Not just Paul prayed, but that was the prayer of his heart. It was his heart's desire to see his people be saved, to see his people come into this relationship with Christ. And then in chapter 11, Paul is going to explain that he doesn't want us to be ignorant of this mystery of Israel. Brief history, uh, very brief. Uh, realized in creation, God created the heavens and the earth. And you realize that there's this family, um, the beginning of the patriarchs, this man named Abraham. He was named Abram, and God called him to follow after himself. Ab he called to Abraham to follow him. And then as Abram followed him, God changed his name to Abraham. He became the father of the, the nation of Israel. He promised that through him, his descendants would multiply and they would be a people that would bless the rest of the world. From Abraham, uh, you realize that he had a son named Isaac. You remember there was a, a son named Ishmael, but Ishmael wasn't the child of promise. Isaac was, and, and Isaac is this representation of a type of Christ for us. He told Abraham to take his own son, his only son whom he loved, to a mountain that he would show him. Then God told Abraham, and I want you to offer him there to me as a sacrifice. Now, Isaac was old enough to carry the wood on his back to be able to travel and rationally ask his dad, Dad, we have the, the fire and we have the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham told his son Isaac, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And you know that I, Abraham was willing to do it, but God stopped him. And there on that mountain, Mount Moriah, which is really that mountain range, which is right there by Golgotha and Calvary, is where Christ was offered. And Jesus willingly offered himself up and took the wood upon his back. And he willingly gave himself as the offering for us. We also realize that after Isaac, you know that there was a, um, a son named Jacob. You remember the, the message a couple of weeks ago about Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, later on, God changed his name to Israel. That's where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. His, his 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And one of those sons named Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers or um, was sold to these marauders and eventually came into second in power to the Pharaoh in Egypt that the nation of Israel might be saved. And then after that, as the people started to grow, there was a, a man named Moses. God raised up a man named Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt. And even though the Pharaoh wanted to kill all of the, the male children in Israel, God had a plan and he preserved Israel. Then after Moses, uh, Moses led the people out of Israel and God gave him the commandments. And, um, and then there was Joshua who led them into the promised land. Joshua, it's a... It's the name for Jesus in the, in the New Testament. God is salvation. 
And he leads them into the promises of God. And then after Joshua, you have the time of the judges, these, these leaders that would come up and kind of rule the land. And um, the people did what was right in their own eyes. And these judges would try to point the people back to the Lord. And then you have the, the time of the kings and the nation of Israel civil war split the 10 tribes to the north and the two tribes to the south. And then you have first and second kings and first and second chronicles and you know, you have Saul and David and these, these kings and the story of God's people. And what eventually happened is they all rebelled against God's people. So the northern 10 tribes, they were assimilated, wiped out by the Assyrians. But the southern two tribes were preserved and they went away into captivity into Babylon. Then they returned and there was this time of the prophets and then this time of silence and then the time of Jesus. And the reason why I share that is because as Paul is writing to the Romans in Romans chapter 11, he is writing primarily to non-Jewish people. Most of us are, are Gentiles. There are some people that have Jewish descent here, but, but most of us are Gentiles. And Paul wrote to the Gentiles in Rome because in Rome they saw that the, the Jews were being subjugated by the Roman Empire and I, I think that in some ways the Romans were asking this question, well, if the Jews are God's people, has God abandoned them? And indirectly, sometimes we could say, will God abandon us? Will God um, abandon his plan for us? What if God had a plan for my life and I messed it up? And so God says, now I don't have a plan for you now. I'm going to go reach out to some other people because you kind of messed it up. And the first thing that we see in that God still has a plan, is that he still has a plan for Israel. Romans 11.1, 1, Paul writes, I say then, has God cast away his people? And then he says, certainly not, or God forbid. Now, there, there's some gears that are going to be turning because there's some, some heavy thinking that's going to be happening here, but the Holy Spirit is going to help us to understand this and to be able to, um, be able to receive it and and see how God's teaching us through this. In the second century, there was a, a theologian named Origen that started to say that God's plan for Israel was done. God had a plan, but remember this, that in AD 70, the temple was destroyed and this general Antiochus Epiphanes comes in and it destroys the temple and, and under Caesar Nero, it just seemed like God's plan for Israel was done. And so people would read the Bible and they would try to interpret the Bible. And in the first century, they still said, no, God still has a plan. But this theologian comes along and says, no, God's promises, his plan for Israel is kind of done with. And now what God had planned to do with Israel, he's going to do with the church. That is something that is called replacement theology. Now, after this replacement theology started to grow, and you look at the nation of Israel, not only were they defeated, but they were driven out of their own homeland. I want you to imagine, just imagine hypothetically, if in the United States, that countries around the world got together and not only defeated the United States, but every American citizen would have to leave. That happened to Israel. They were kicked out of their own land. 
And it wasn't just for 50 years or 100 years. It goes on to 2,000 years outside of their own homeland. Now, there are ancient civilizations that as soon as they get destroyed and they get kicked out of their land, they stop speaking those languages. We call those dead languages because we don't speak them anymore because those countries aren't in existence. And yet for 2,000 years, not only was Israel kicked out of their own land, their own um, country, their own place, they retained their language. They retained their culture. They retained their heritage. And they retained their belief in God. Now, not 100% every single Jewish person, but as a whole, this is what has happened. And imagine that I'm a Bible scholar in Germany. And uh, let's say that this is in the 1930s. And I'm reading the Bible and I'm looking at that. And I'm, I'm reading about, you know, in Ezekiel, about God's promises to regather Israel back into their own land. And God's promises to still do a work in Israel. And then I start to read one of my heroes of the faith, a guy named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was brilliant. Brilliant man of God. Um, I... For a year, I read through a devotional that was just based on Martin Luther's writings, and I was so blessed, and I felt like I was strengthened, and I, I grew in my understanding of God through that. But Martin Luther, towards the latter part of his ministry, started to change and kind of feel like, yeah, you know what? I, I kind of believe that God's purpose for Israel as a nation is done. And so he started to write about that. And theologians started to take hold of that and think, wow, if Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, if he thinks this, maybe it's true. Maybe God's plan for Israel is done. After all, Israel by that time is not only wiped out, but they're sent to the four corners of the world and they're oppressed and they're in all these other places. And so that theology called replacement theology and I, I want you to hear me carefully. I'm not blaming all of it on that. But to a, a large extent, that theology led to the Holocaust. It was that theology that caused the church in Germany to say, the, is, you know, the Jewish people were evil because they crucified Jesus and began to blame that on the Jewish people. Now, were they a part of that? Yeah. Were the Romans a part of that? Yeah. Were you and I a part of that? Yeah, because Jesus died for our sins. But in doing so, when Hitler comes into power and he meets with the pastors, uh, just imagine if our president said, I want to meet with all of the pastors. And this is what Hitler told them. He told them, your nonprofit status is safe. Your uh, 501c3, so to speak, is safe. And I will leave the soul of the church to you, but you leave the soul of Germany to me. And they did because they were afraid. They were fearful of losing their um, ability to meet and to worship without persecution. They were fearful of losing their nonprofit status. And when they looked at their theology, they kind of felt like, yeah, I guess God is kind of done with the Jewish people. And that's what ended up happening as a part of Nazi Germany. Now, there were some German pastors like Dietrich Bonhoeffer that, that didn't see it that way and, and rebelled against that and said, no, uh, you know, God's word uh, is not saying that. But 
but many of them went that way. And so when I read in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, when Paul was writing to the Romans in the first century, you, you, look, you look at it now and you realize that even today there are many people that have a hatred for the Jews. Anti-Semitism is satanic at its root. It is satanic at its root. Anti-any nationality is satanic at its root, right? If you have a, a hatred towards any nationality, I hate all of the people from this race, that, that's not from God. For God so loved the world. But let me say this, that that anti-Semitism, why is it that this small little speck on the globe that is so tiny, that is smaller than most of the states in the United States, why is it that so much of the world focuses on this place? In fact, when you think about the nations surrounding Israel, so many of those nations would, would love to dismantle or destroy Israel. And yet in 1948, the most unlikely thing happens. Israel, once again, after World War II, after the Holocaust, after they are almost totally wiped out and decimated, the UN votes and Israel becomes a nation again. That's an amazing, amazing thing. And when Israel becomes a nation again, um, here's a, a cool little bit of trivia. When they voted, and it was a real close vote, and it was even. You know what the deciding vote was? The deciding vote was the Philippines. The Philippines voted for Israel to become a nation. That's why my friends that are pastors in the Philippines, they can't come to the United States to get a visa because the United States is saying no, and the Philippines is saying no, you can't go there. But it's an open door from Israel, and Israel said, you don't need a visa. You are welcome. Any Filipino citizens, you can come here because your vote helped us to become uh, a, a nation again. So anyway, it's just kind of a cool little trivia thing. But the reason why I share this is because it is so important because Israel doesn't, it's not just about Israel. You know what Israel teaches us about? It teaches us about the heart of God. Because I, like you, at times have had fears that I have messed up my plan or God's plan for my life. And maybe you've even had that fear that, that, wow, I, I've messed up so badly that God is done with me. And if not you, then you know people that are not sitting here with you because they believe that God is done with them and they have already messed up their own plan, God's plan for their lives, and they can never come back. And Israel stands as a witness to not their faithfulness, but to God's faithfulness. It doesn't mean that someone that is Jewish by heritage is naturally more spiritual and loves Jesus and understands the gospel more than anyone else. But it, it does mean that God has a plan for them sovereignly so that he could show that it's his own faithfulness. In the same way that he shows me that it's not my good works or my heritage or where I've come from, it, it's God's grace in all of our cases. God is not a respecter of persons. But Israel stands as a group of people that God says, if you consider them, then you will see my faithfulness. So the first witness that God still has a plan is that he still has a plan for Israel. But then Paul makes it very personal by saying, I'm going to give you another witness. Paul says this in verse 1, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, if you think that God 
might cast you off or that God doesn't have a plan or God doesn't have a plan for Israel, he could say, look at me. Look at me. I am an example. Sometimes we might feel like, man, uh, you, you look at the way that the secularization of the world is going. It's becoming more and more secular or, or turning away from God. Spiritual, quote unquote, but not religious, but just turning away from God. And, and sometimes we could say, well, where are God's witnesses? But I want to share that if you know the Lord, you are a witness. You are a testimony, a living example that God is not done, that God is still doing the work because he saved you. After all, you're, you're here. After all, you've opened up your heart to the Lord. So Paul says, look at me, I'm an Israelite. And in a sense, he's saying, how can God be done with the Jews? Because I'm a Jew and I'm writing to Gentiles and God has made me the apostle to the Gentiles. And I'm a Jewish person. How can God be done with the Jews if I'm Jewish and I'm writing to you Gentiles? And you know what? That's one of the great blessings of testimonies. And I encourage you to share your testimony, share your story. When you share your testimony, when you share your story, it opens up people's hearts that otherwise would be closed because the only thing they know about God is what they see on TV or what they hear or what's in their imaginations. But as soon as there's a real living person that has relationship with them, and then you open up their heart to them, they're going, wow, man, not all Christians are jerks. Uh, it's one of the, the things, we're doing this thing called uh, Supper for Six. For those that signed up, it's just six people getting together to have meals together and just to get to know each other, no agenda other than that. And one of the guys shared that one of the coolest things that happened as a result of his dinner with these people was that there was a guy at church that told him, you know what? It's really cool because I thought you were a jerk. <laughs> that, that was his testimony. His testimony was like, well, then we had dinner and I realized you're not a jerk. And I'm like, wow, what a cool thing. Because they got to know each other. They realized, okay, you know, he's, he's all right. Yeah, I, I think about what a testimony can do. It, it enables the people that are around you to see Jesus lived out. As Paul writes, we are living epistles. And sometimes you are the only Bible that anyone would ever read. They're just going to look at your life. And from how you live and how I live, they're going to determine whether or not Jesus is real or they would want to pursue this thing called Christianity at all. Based on us, our neighbors, our friends, our family members. Now, here's the cool thing, even if you've messed up, God still has a plan. Israel was to be that light, the city on a hill, the nation that was to be the light to the other nations. Did they mess up? Yeah, as a nation, they, they rejected Christ. But let me tell you that God is showing, even though they messed up, God's plan is not thwarted. In verse two, the next witness is the witness of Elijah. It says, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. If you read about Elijah, Elijah on Mount Carmel, he set up against the prophets of Baal. 
And the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, they call upon their God. And Elijah says, okay, it's, it's Elijah's um, proposition to them. Let's see whose God is really God. And let's go ahead and build an altar. And whichever God comes and lights the fire will be God. And the 450 prophets of Baal, they scream, they yell, they cut themselves. They try to get their God's attention and nothing happens. And then Elijah comes and says, okay, well, why don't you go ahead and get some water and pour it on the wood? So they get water. He goes, you know what, get more water. And they get more water. No, get more water. It says that the wood began, began to float. And, God, and Elijah calls upon his God that all of the people would know that there is a God that is real, the God of Israel who saves. And the fire comes down from heaven and takes up all of the wood. And there's victory. And it seems like everything is great. Until a woman named Jezebel, who is the, the queen says to Elijah, you little punk. She doesn't say that, but that's a paraphrase. And she says, she does say this, I'm gonna give your flesh to the birds of the air. You're, you're a dead man. And Elijah freaks out and he runs away from her and he hides in this cave. And in this cave that Elijah is in, he begins to call out and say, I alone am left. Do you ever feel like you're alone? Do you ever feel like, uh, God, I am, I'm the only Christian here. I'm the only Christian at my job site. I'm the only Christian in my family. I'm the only Christian in my neighborhood. I'm the only Christian in my team. I'm the only Christian in my class. I'm the only, I, I alone am left. God, I'm the last, I'm the last hope that you have. <laughs> and God tells Elijah, hey, there are 7,000 who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. I think it reminds us that when we feel like we are alone, that there are other faithful people, a remnant. We're not alone. And, and by the way, since when is God limited to being able to work with only a few? Since when is God, um, is his plan messed up when he doesn't have enough people? All throughout scripture, it's the few that are faithful that God says, I will show my strength on behalf of the few. Because when there's few, in fact, do you remember when, when Gideon was going to, to bring this army, God told him, you have a problem, Gideon, you have too many people. And he reduced it from 32,000 down to 300. And finally, God says, okay, now I could do a work. Now that you're outmanned, you're outgunned, and you're down to just a few, now I could do a work and people will give me the glory instead of you and your soldiers the glory or you and the people. But I'll tell you what happens that in Elijah's cave of bitterness and he's saying, God, I alone am left. Sometimes we feel like God is forgotten. Sometimes we feel like, God, didn't you see I wanted to serve you? Didn't you see how zealous I was? Do you remember at one point, Elijah is incredibly zealous for God. He challenges the prophets of Baal and he calls upon the, the living God. And now he's at this place of God it's better that I'm dead. It would be better if I died. Uh, Elijah feels so overwhelmed. And I'll tell you that there are times that we could look back at zealous things that we have done for the Lord, things that we desire to do for God, and it didn't go the way that we had planned. A marriage, a family that didn't go the way as planned. A job, a ministry, a move didn't go the way as planned. And sometimes we can get bitter. And sometimes we could throw a pity party. 
And sometimes we could actually become judgmental of other people saying, I'm better. What Elijah's saying is, in a sense, I'm better than all these other people. And sometimes we can say that, like, I'm the last faithful one. It's just me. But let me tell you that God is not done with you. And God is not done with me. Because he also gives the witness of this remnant in verse 5. Even so, then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. These are, there's passages in the Bible that deal specifically with this um, subject of predestination, that it's because of grace. It's not because I've earned it. And in verse 6, it says, and if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Here's what Paul is saying. If you have to earn it, that's not grace. Because grace is undeserved. God's grace, and I I believe that, like I said last week, it's the reason that keeps most people away from God is pride. It's the pride of saying, I could do it on my own. I don't need a handout. I'm going to earn my way. I'm going to be good enough, and God will accept me based on my goodness compared to other people. And that's all pride. I'll tell you, it's what kept my dad away from the Lord for so many years. It's what kept Paul the apostle away from the Lord. It was his pride. I mean, Paul was more zealous than than any other Jewish person. But it was that zeal without knowledge. Remember in Ephesians uh, 2, 8 through 10, it's, it's we're saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of yourselves. It's the free gift of God. We don't earn it. In fact, if you have to earn a gift, it's not a gift. That's a ripoff, right? All the time. Can you imagine if... if uh, your birthday, you know, here's your birthday present. And uh, someone gives you, you know, a brand new, um, you know, gym, a workout set, you know, and you have a bench press and you have all these cables. I'm like, wow, I got my own, my own like universal set in my house and you're, you're working out. And, and then the person that gave it to you a few months later says, hey, how, have, how much have you been working out? You've been using that thing? Yeah, you know, kind of, yeah, I've been using it. Well, how often? Like once a month. I bought, I gave that to you as a gift, and you only use that once a month? You know, I'm taking it back. Uh, unless, unless you could show me that you work out five days a week, then I'm going to come and repossess that gift that I gave to you. Then it's not a gift. It's something that you have to earn, you have to work for. And sometimes people get that in their mindsets. That's how God's gift is. He gives us this gift of free salvation, and that's a gift, but I have to keep it up and maintain it myself, because if I don't maintain it, he's going to come and take it back. And that is not a gift. And so what Paul is writing is, hey, it's grace. And if it's by grace, it's not about works. In verse 7, he says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says in verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow uh, down their, um, their back always. Now, this seems like, well, is God cruel then to blind them? God only blinds those spiritually that want to be blinded. He only blinds those spiritually that want to be blinded. He only 
allows us to go in the trajectory in which we are going. And eventually, I mean, he still tries to reach out to us, but like Pharaoh, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He wouldn't let God's people go. He kept persecuting them. And then there's a point in time after all of those times where it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, then it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. If you're gonna go that way, go ahead and go that way. But in God saying, go ahead and go that way, I believe that even in God's discipline, he's redemptive. Even in God's discipline, it's so that we would come to repentance. For those of you that are parents, I I think especially for those of you that are parents of kids that are already adults and outside of the house, I think learning from what I hear to unparent and what I'm experiencing to a certain degree, not as much as some of you, Learning to unparent or not unparent, but not necessarily be there and make all the decisions for your kids is difficult. Because as adults, they could do whatever they want. They could go their own way. And as they go their own way, and at times that's even in rebellion towards God, there could be a sense of helplessness. Like now, now what am I going to do? I'm helpless. My kids aren't walking with God. But let me tell you that even in God's discipline, he's trying to reach out because God never chastises us needlessly. He's always trying to bring us back to that place of repentance. And I really believe that when we read in Corinthians, do you remember uh, Paul writes to the Corinthian church about a man that is in sexual sin with his, with his mother-in-law? 